All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's uh, go ahead and get started. Um, we had a congregational meeting, so uh, some people are probably going to be wandering in, uh, but that's okay. Uh, we gave them a 16-minute uh, leeway, but that's about as much as I can afford. So welcome back. Uh, my name is Kirk Rogers, um, and we are talking about the uh, Ten Commandments. This is our fourth class, and uh, we were just rocking our way through this. We're up to commandment number two today. Um, nope. Um, the, uh, but, you know, that's always a sign of a good teacher. You know, you always want to go back and make sure your students are getting it. So you guys are a little slow on the uptake, so i got to keep, you know, reinforcing it. So the question I have for you is, is you know, who's going to be the first one to raise their hand? Because every time I do this, my students raise their hand. Yes. Do you get a prize? Uh, well, you got to raise your hand and tell me or ask me the question. And all my students ask me this question every time I do this. Really? Nobody? You guys, you, you're all adults well, now. You don't know what middle school, you don't got to think like a middle school. Bill! How long is this going to take? Is it going to be on the test? So this is the question I get every time I do this. So Mr. Rogers, did you get a haircut? Really? I mean, last time I was in here, my hair was as long as Fritz's over there. So here's the story about the haircut. I had a barber for... 40 years, Tony, down across from Helix High School. He was a Filipino, served in the U.S. Navy, came to the United States, started working in this tiny little shop in 1965. And when I started going to him, it was $3 for a haircut. <coughs> and the very first month I went to him, he said, Kirk, I, you know, I'm sorry about this, but i got to raise my prices. This is like 1980. I said, yeah, that's fine, Tony. He goes, yeah, we're raising them to 4 <laughs> and I paid four dollars to get my hair cut for the next 40 years. Wow. <laughs> Never went up. Now I always gave him a 10, but um, most people just gave him a five. And this older gentleman owned the, it was basically a garage that was converted across from Helix High School into a barbershop. But uh, the owner, really nice African-American man, would come in once a month and Tony would reach down into his, his drawer and take out a wad of fives, because everybody used to give him a five, his haircut was four bucks, and hand him the rent each, each, each month. But when COVID hit, Tony shut down. I mean, he was like in his 80s, I think, uh, when COVID hit. So I had to find a new barber. So I did a little research and I found somebody. But the problem is, I'm spending, Tony charges four, but I gave him a 10 spot. <laughs> Now I got to pay what all these other people pay for haircuts. <laughs> so now I can only get a haircut like four or five times a year. I used to go to Tony every other week. So I tell the guy, cut it as short as you can cut it because I'm not coming back for about three or four months. How much is it now? For my hair, so yeah. so there's a, there's a middle school kid. So how much are you paying, Mr. Well, Rogers? Yeah. Um, I pay a lot. I do not. Forty dollars. Oh no. 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 Yeah. No. And um, I can help. That's right. I know. Oh, you need to go to the, the <laughs> but you know it, it, barbers are like barbers are like doctors, right? I mean, you start going to one and you start kind of building a relationship, and then you you, you maybe find somebody else. Yeah. Like my, my my primary physician, I, I should have dumped this guy a long time ago. He almost let me die a couple months ago, uh -uh. but 
Um, you just can't do it, you know. You just build these relationships. You need help. I Turk, I'll do it for thirty-five. <laughs> well, you know what? And I will here, but, but, here, but here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. This what? I, this what? This this will be. This will be another homework. You did have homework last time, believe it or not. Your homework was to go down to the uh, the fellowship time in the courtyard. I don't know how many of you went down there, but it was fantastic. Ben was down there with uh, Jeff and. Then, and the uh, Adam and the Blues brass band, and they were, uh, you know, pounding it out. It was fantastic. Um, so, what's that? I do haircuts and yeah. But here's the deal, right? Here's your here's your homework assignment. So I'm going to be here probably up until Easter, maybe longer, to get through these Ten Commandments. So I want you to, you know, right now you're going, yeah, Kurt, really, forty bucks? I could do that, right? But watch how it grows. <laughs> my, my, but it, it grows really well. I mean, it, it'll, it'll grow out, and it doesn't look like with Tony. Tony gave me a good haircut, but I had to go back every two weeks because it needed to be trimmed up and look good. My hair is going to look great for the next three months. I was actually wondering why you uh, slacking on playing golf. Just because you're paying for your haircut. Exactly. <laughs> well, I can't, I can't play now, Bill, because I go out in the morning and my head's just freezing. <laughs> I know. I, I, I have to put I have to put one on it at night in the house. All right. So, you know how it goes. Those of you that ever had to teach anything, this is the best lesson so far, and we're starting at five minutes tell. So we'll we'll see how it goes, but. Um, we're talking about the Ten Commandments, and once again, you're going to you're going to see this every single time, and I'm going to read it to you every single time, so that we can kind of get this into our long-term memory. Um, this is our class overview. The Ten Commandments are the Creator God of the universe's instructions to us, as C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity. Moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in running of that machine. And when I reread that uh, a couple days ago, getting ready for class, I just watched the news. Man, do we have a breakdown. <laughs> also, Christian orthodoxy, basic Christian doctrine, traditional Christianity, or whatever term you want to use, and I'm going to be using those terms over and over again, but what I'm talking here about is basic Christian beliefs is not the norm any longer. Um, our culture glorifies self and disregards God's truth. However, God's... That comment should be on the other side there. However, God's word speaks clearly into every area of our lives, offering us not what we want to hear, but what we need <coughs> most. And I'm going to show you two videos today. And one of them is from Bishop Barron. We saw him. He's the guy that did the commentary on uh, the movie, The Book of Eli. Um, but he's going to do, do for us a quick overview of the Ten Commandments. And he talks about the <coughs> fact that you know we're, we're living now in a culture where um, 
belief in God, belief in the Creator God, um, it, it's just it's not there anymore, like it maybe it was 50, uh, 60 years ago. Uh, the Ten Commandments do not provide us with a ladder to climb to reach acceptance with God. Instead, the Ten Commandments are a mirror that exposes our sins and sends us to our Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, <clears throat> charting the way the Christian must walk to enjoy the fullness and freedom our Heavenly Father intends for us. Um, the Gospel sends us to the law again and again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified by our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we talked about these two terms, justification and sanctification. So um, the gospel sends us to the law again and again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified, saved, by our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian believer is free from the law as a means of justification. You don't get justified with God by keeping the law. The believer is not justified by keeping the law, but having been justified, the believer strives to keep the law. So any good teacher knows that the best thing you can do for your students is just keep saying it over and over again. So we'll always have a quick review. Um, each time. So this is just a few things that we've talked about in class. This idea of basic Christian orthodoxy, and this is where we need to start with our friends, uh, our neighbors who are not believers, and we were talking about this uh, before class started. Um, this idea, if somebody actually comes up to you and really is um, genuine about saying, yeah, you know, tell me about your faith, you struck gold because most people don't want to do that. Uh, but the first place I think you, we have to start is, you know, do you believe in God? Do you believe that there's a creator God of the universe, um, or do you believe that something came out of nothing? Um, Christian, basic Christian orthodoxy believes that God is powerful, speaking all into being, time, space, and matter. That was in... Uh, our, uh, one, of the, one of the hymns today, or one of the songs today. God is perfect, self-existent, in need of no one and nothing. God is praiseworthy on account of his person and his works. God is plural. Christians believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All are co-equal. All are co-eternal. The Word of God is contained in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, which are found in the Bible. We must also recognize there is distinct differences between the Christian faith and other world religions. Not all world religions are the same. So, the last time we met, we tried to work our way through the first commandment, and this is an abbreviation of the first commandment, no other gods, um, you shall have no other gods before me. So we talked a little bit about what that meant, God demands his people total devotion, and this is firmly based upon who God is and what God has done. God is both creator and redeemer. We talked about the fact that most of us living, especially those of us who live here in America in the 21st century, we don't necessarily shape in idols and worship statues, etc., etc. 
Um, but we do tend to put other things in front of God. So I gave you a, a list here. Of sometimes we maybe go down that, a road where we start to spend too much time, maybe even get to the point where we actually could say that we do worship some of these things. So these are, these are, th- these are uh, <clears throat> pitfalls for, especially for those of us who live in a very wealthy um, country like the United States. So intelligence can become a god for us academic success, wealth, possessions, physical fitness, fame, mentors, self, family members, patriotism, love of country. We can spend the next you know, 15 minutes adding to this list. There's not any, nothing necessarily uh, wrong with any one of those things unless they start becoming more important to you than God. So since Bill's in the room, he's one of my golfing buddies, you know, the idea um, is there's something wrong with being a good golfer? Not necessarily. Is there something wrong with, you know, playing a lot of golf? Not necessarily. But if you kind of make it your your God, your your one and all, you might have a problem. And that's for each of us. We have to, you know, search our hearts. And, and look at that. And that leads us to this. The idea of the perversity of the human heart is such that even these good things sometimes become an occasion for idolatry. As we go through all the commandments, we'll be challenged with the outward conformity to the law and the submission of the heart. And we have these two um, Bible verses to try and help us with that. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Um, that from is wrong. That was misspelled. Uh, excuse me. All you do flows from it. From it. Yeah. 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 And then search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's anything offensive way in me. Um, so, the law, specifically boiling it down now to the Ten Commandments. How many people have ever heard of the Bible Project? So, if you haven't, the Bible Project is was started by two uh, relatively young guys. One's <coughs> name is Timothy Mackey. The other is named Jonathan Collins. They're longtime friends. They're up in Oregon, near Portland, and they decided to start this. Uh, basically, it's a, they, they they take donations and they decided to start making these videos to try and help people understand uh, the Bible. So I, I, I found them a long time ago. I think Jeff might have been the first person who showed one in one of his classes. I think it was on the Older New Testament survey class that he does. Um, but I haven't been back to them in a while, and their numbers are <coughs> crazy now. So they have over 100 million views across all their media channels that reach over 200 countries. I think they have over three million subscribers now on YouTube, and I believe the stuff they put out is pretty good stuff. Um, and so I'm going to go and show you a couple things from their um, their website. So one of the things is they have 
believe it or not, they have so much content, but they have basically, they do, this is the Old Testament, they do these, what I would call surveys, a quick, you know, a big, thank you, you can go ahead and turn them off. This kind of this big overview of um, every single book in the Bible. And you heard me say this before, uh, as a middle school history teacher, I think one of the problems a lot of my students had when they came to me, a lot of them never liked history. <coughs> they, they, they uh, hate history, hate history, hate history. And when they leave, most of them always say, yeah, Mr. Rogers, your class wasn't too bad. That's a, that's a compliment from middle school. <laughs> and, um, they didn't like it, but it wasn't too well, bad. Well, they, I, I think they like it because what I tried to do was, I think the reason why a lot of people don't like history is they see it as just as these little piecemeal things that yeah. teachers try to throw out at them, and they don't see the big story. So I literally, you can, uh, I'm going to play one of these we're gonna, because it relates to what we're talking about, but I'm going to play the second part of Exodus. Uh, it's only five minutes. And I want you to see what I believe, that they do a really outstanding job of giving you this overview of the Bible. So you can print these out. Actually, I was going to, I should have done it, I forgot, but actually I, I was going to print out the overview of Exodus for you to take home. But I, I printed out, I have every single one of these. For every book in the Old Testament, every book in the New Testament, I have them in a folder. And before I read a book in the Bible, I, I study these overviews. Um, and then they also do um, animation for themes. So after I show you this overview of Exodus, I want to show you their video, about six minutes, on what they call the law. And then we'll, we'll move on from there. So this is... Um, the second part of Exodus. See, they, sometimes they get a little bit too big, so they break them up. They don't want anything to be longer than five minutes because they know most people that, that use the Internet can't focus any longer than five minutes. Um, That's beautiful, isn't it? It's amazing. It's true. Yeah. The book of Exodus... In the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant. They will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. 
These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. So Moses writes down all of these laws and he brings them down to the people who, again, eagerly agree to enter into this covenant with God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses that he wants his holy and divine and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel, which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship, and first with Israel, and then somehow one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold, and the jewels, it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans live together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace, at least in theory, because right here something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain. They can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. Now what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own people? And so God accepts Moses' intercession and he relents. And while he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here, at this point in the story, that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means he knows he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. 
And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter, where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent, and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent, and he can't. He actually can't go in, and that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but... Not really, if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realized. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now, as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question, as the book closes, is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about. But for now, that's the book of Exodus. Well, I want to talk to you about the Ten Commandments. Yeah, I've been going back, Bishop Baird. Go back yeah. um, generations. Hold it, Most Bishop. biblical. Freeze. We'll come back to Bishop Mary. Yeah. Um, so, what do you what what do you think of that? You think that can be helpful? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. What what is their background? How I mean. Can you get uh, just one light? Um, he's he's a uh, he taught at uh, Western Seminary, which is a, a Baptist seminary up in uh, near the Portland area. Um, and then his other buddy, you'll see him in the, the end of this next video. But um, they uh, so and everything is free, and so you can print out you know a one page summary of every single book. As I mentioned before, I, I did that. But I think I think it's pretty helpful, you know. Um, I've I've gotten into it where I just watch book after book after book after book. But it's really helpful if you're willing to kind of look at this and get the overview, and then go back and then actually read the entire uh, book of the Bible. But then they do um, other videos that take themes, and so one of the themes would be the law. And since we're talking about the law, I want to show you that video, and then we'll keep moving on here. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing, because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. 
and all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. So some of the laws are about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just a complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, no, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention, because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. If don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws, and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new, transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land, they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others, and he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy, and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. 
And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. This video was made possible by over 1,300 people who chipped in, and most of those are monthly givers to the Bible Project. Thank you guys so much. We make a lot of videos like this one that trace a biblical theme from the beginning to the end of Scripture. We're also making videos about every book of the Bible, helping you learn about its design and overall message. We're committed to keeping these videos free, and we're able to do that because of your support. If you want to see more videos or other resources we have, go to jointhebibleproject.com. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> so, um, I, you know, somebody asked, you know, well, who are these guys? I think that's one of the most important things we can do um, when we're, we're looking at... <coughs> um, just one, thank you. Um, videos or sources or whatever, especially on the internet, is you know who exactly are these people? So if you go and you you, you Google the Bible Project, you, you Google Tim, uh, the the first guy you saw up there, um, there's always somebody who's going to come out and say, well, you know, I have a problem with what he said about this or what he said about that. Um, but for me, overall, uh, I think these guys are sound. Um, basic, teach basic Christian orthodoxy. And I, I believe, um, you know, you, if you haven't figured it out yet, I keep, we, we try to get into these more specific commandments, but then I keep trying to give you this overview of what the law is all about when it comes to the Bible. So I, I want, I guess those are my two main things I'm trying to get across to you um, in here as we look at a specific commandment what does that mean for us today in 2022? But then also, we need to understand the, the basics behind the whole law that's given to us in the Bible. So with that said, I want to talk to you about the fact that, I don't know if we're going to get to Bishop Barron today, so we'll have to maybe put him off till next week, but there is a difference, or at least the Catholic Church lists the Ten Commandments different than the Protestant churches tend to do, and the Jewish people tend to do. And so, if you want to know what it looks like in its original form, it's stated twice in the Bible, one in Exodus 20, and then again in Deuteronomy 5. And you can kind of, you know, we've read this before, but it, it reads more as, you know, a, a narrative. And then when I showed you the Prager video, he talked about the fact that in Hebrew, it's not the Ten Commandments, it's the Ten Statements. So I want to show you um, the difference between those real quickly. We'll get to the original ones. So in Judaism, because uh, they tend, as Prager mentioned, uh, the original Hebrews calls them the Ten Statements, their first commandment reads... I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So if you go to the Prager videos, when he talks about um, commandment number one that we talked about last week, that's listed number two here. 
thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so in Jewish tradition, because they're the statements, you just don't throw out that first statement, that's the way they're listed. Now if you go to uh, the Catholic Church, the church I grew up in, uh, they start with not that first statement, and it, we're talking about you know when you take them and you, you simplify them, they start with, I the Lord am your God, you shall have no other gods beside me. And then the second commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. That's interesting, because the second commandment I'm going to teach about right now, but maybe not, maybe we'll just end class now, um, <laughs> is this idea of graven images. And when orders the Catholic Church doesn't have that. So what they do is when they go down, is they, they split up the uh, ninth commandment in the Protestant version into two. So number nine is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and then we're going to split that in two, and then you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. So this is, the, this is the list I was asked to memorize in my catechism class. This is the list I was asked to, to know. Um, the Protestant list tends to put them in this order. So you shall have no other gods but me. You sh number two, you shall not make unto you any graven images. And you can kind of get the reason, and then if you go down to 9 and 10, um, uh, 10 is, is the, would be 9 and 10 in the Catholic version. But so depending on what, what you grow, grow up, what church you tend to grow up in, you might be more familiar with one list uh, as opposed to the other. And you kind of probably can kind of get a, a feel for why um, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church tends to kind of soft pedal um, graven images. I mean, if you've ever been in a Catholic church, uh, they like their statues, they like their crucifixes, they like this. And I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with those. I'm just saying this is, we're talking, some of this is, is more tradition. So we're going to get into some uh, interesting uh, areas of discussion right now. So let's get into it. Oh, look, our time is up. <laughs> <laughs> so the first and the second commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall not have strange gods before me. You shall not make to thyself any graven thing, nor the likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath, nor, in, nor of those things that are in the waters under the earth. You shall not adore them, adore them nor serve them. So once again, the Protestant's version is, one, you shall have no other gods but me. We talked about that last week. Two, you shall not make unto you any graven images. <clears throat> so what does our Protestant Reformed tradition say about this second commandment when it comes to graven images? So we're going to go back to the Heidelberg Catechism. 1562, and we, we used this before in our other classes. What is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. May we then not make any image at all? 
God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images if one's intention is to worship them or to serve God through them. But may not images be permitted in churches in place of books for the unlearned? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. God wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. So this is where the Reformed tradition, uh, Professor Rick Kennedy, who taught on Calvin, you're gonna, I'm going to quote Calvin here. Um, so we're going to talk about what the Reformed tradition um, believes. Um, but then we're... <laughs> I'm going to maybe take a couple steps back and uh, say that uh, you know, maybe not necessarily everything that we're talking about in the that's not of the Reformed tradition isn't necessarily totally um, wrong or totally against the Second Commandment. So see if I can walk this tightrope here. Um, so the first commandment forbids the worship of any false god. The second commandment demands that we do not worship the one true creator God in an unworthy manner. So it, the, the, the uh, easier way to kind of say that is, it is not enough to worship the correct God. That's number one. But number two, we must worship the correct God correctly. Okay, so what does that mean? It's me. It's a hard issue. Now we get a history lesson. <laughs> so, the church has struggled with this second commandment when it talks about graven images since the very beginning. And around uh, the 300s, um, and notice everything in red there, that's Christianity. Notice, if you, if you throw up a modern map today, a lot of that isn't Christian anymore, predominantly Christian anymore. There's still remnants of Christians, but a lot of that is not predominantly Christian anymore, especially in Asia. But they argued about this way back, only a couple hundred years after the start um, of what we would call uh, the Catholic Church. And the idea is, can you have images? Can you have icons? <coughs> and so they went back and forth on this, back and forth on this. Um, so icons, uh, that's a Greek word meaning images, refers to the religious images of Byzantium made from a variety of media which depict holy figures and events. You heard this word iconoclasm refers to any destruction of images, including uh, the Byzantine iconoclastic controversy of the 8th and 9th century. So they, they did, some people started taking this second commandment very seriously, and they started saying, you know, you can't have anything. You can't have statues, you can't have paintings, you can't have any of this stuff. We've got to get rid of it. And so there's this arguing that went back and forth, back and forth. The word iconoclast uh, in Greek means breaker of images, so it refers to those that went in and basically said, we're taking them out, we're destroying them, you can't have this. 
um, econophiles are those who are known, uh, refers to those who supported the use of imams. <coughs> well, you all know basically um, how this how this went, right? I mean, if you if you go into a Catholic church today, it it, it would go back and forth, back and forth, arguing, arguing, back and forth. People going in, taking out images, destroying images, or whatever. But for the most part, they decided that as long as you're not worshiping God at that image, thinking that image, that idol, is you're making it into the creator God, you're okay. So when you go into Catholic churches, you see lots of art, you see lots of statues, you see depicting different saints. So the, the Catholics used to have saints um, that would be, um, you know, considered an important part of that Catholic church, that building, or whatever, the final resting place of that saint. Um, but then when the Reformation comes, I'm going to skip over some of this. When the Reformation, Reformation comes, this big controversy comes back again. And Calvin was right in the middle of it. And basically, if you're a, a follower of Calvin, his basically thing, once again, is you've got to get it out. You can't have it. And so if you go into a, a, a Reformed church back in Calvin's time, um, it's going to be, it's basically there's hardly nothing in there. I mean, there's, there's, there's no paintings, there's no statues. Um, you're, you're not seeing hardly anything of any kind. And you have this time in history where um, the, some people that really became very uh, adamant about this second commandment would go in and they would take things out of churches. Churches were destroyed. Lots of art was destroyed uh, in the name of this um, commandment. And so the question for us is, as people that live in 2022, is, you know, where do we come down on this second commandment? And we're going to have to leave it there because I've already gone three minutes over. So it looks like we still haven't gotten through the second commandment, really haven't gotten into it. But we'll come back next week and we'll pick up here and we will try and get ourselves through this second commandment. So if you're interested, you might want to uh, do a little research on your own. And hopefully next week we'll have some time for, for questions and answers. So let me just close this with a prayer. I don't want to keep you late. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time to be together to study your word. Um, dear Lord, we ask that you uh, open our hearts, open our minds uh, to your word and that we might truly follow you, um, not just with our minds, but especially with our hearts. We thank you for being our Lord and our Savior, and we lift this prayer up to you in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.